everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Aliyah Hussein, and I'm here with my co-host, Ian Head. I feel like, you know, we, we've been doing this Activist Files, and people know our voices, but they don't really know us too well. I know that um, you authored a chapter in a book. I would love to hear, and I feel like our listeners would love to hear, writing a chapter for a book, like, how is that? The book was Obama's Guantanamo. The chapter um, that I wrote was called Storytelling Hashtag Guantanamo, and it's the first long piece writing I've ever done. And it was easy in that the story really came together naturally because, you know, as an advocate that gets the opportunity to go down to the Guantanamo Bay prison with our lawyers and see the men that we represent who are detained there, myself, you know, I've been to Guantanamo over a dozen times in the eight years I've been at CCR. And so it was a really great opportunity to sit down and write about that experience and in particular how many of the men that I met with were my age and what, you know, over a decade of detention looks like for them um, when I think about my own life and my own privilege as sort of a young Muslim American woman living in Brooklyn. Especially because I feel like a lot of the people that write these books are lawyers or academics. I just think it's great to like have a different kind of voice. Yeah. Well, know? I think the, I mean, you could probably speak to that too. We're both non-lawyers who work at a legal organization. And I think in some ways, because we're non-lawyers, we bring a unique perspective to the work and also just have the ability to talk about the work in different ways. I don't know, part of the tension a bit about putting your voice out there is once you put it out there, you know, you're sort of opening yourself up for your own criticisms. And I'm one of um, my worst critics. So um, I realize that you can't be everything for everybody. And mm-hmm. as long as you're telling a story that's authentic and getting folks who maybe didn't know about an issue to think twice about it, I think that's, you know, pretty important. Speaking of issues that people might not know about, we have a really cool interview on this episode. Yeah. So on this episode, uh, we hear from two lawyers, Beth Stevens and Judith Chomsky, about their work representing a group of indigenous Bolivians uh, who actually brought their former president to trial in the United States. Uh, for ordering a military massacre that killed their family members. Uh, Beth and Judith came to CCR's office and did a great kind of oral history for staff before taping uh, the podcast, and it was really fascinating uh, to hear their experience working with this specific movement um, and trying to bring justice to the family and using the U.S. courts to do that. Yeah. No, I think people really dig it. Uh, Before we get to some of the latest news at CCR, I just want to give a shout-out to Charles who is silently uh, here for every episode, working diligently before and after, recording all of these interviews and all of these Real AF episodes and intros. And And one uh, day we're going to get him on Real AF and ask him about his favorite Star Trek character and who he'd rather hang out with. But first, here's the uh, latest news from CCR. We were with our partner, SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, outside the Vatican Embassy in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago, calling on Pope Francis to release all his files related to allegations of clergy sexual violence. And as the right-wing arm of the church is trying to link the crisis of sexual violence with homosexuality, survivors came out to say not in their name, and that making this link is wrong and immoral. Dedicated listeners to the Activist Files might remember our interview with Louisiana activists Ann Rolfes and Pastor Joseph from Episode 2. Well, they're continuing their community's fight to stop the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, and this week they had a huge victory. After the Bayou Bridge Pipeline Company came onto private property, 
and started digging up and laying pipeline without permission. A landowner filed suit, saying the company never got his consent to do so. This Monday, right before the case was about to go to a judge, the pipeline company agreed to stop construction on the property until further instruction from the court. So stay tuned. We recently launched a new coalition to fight back against corporations from another angle, in addition to litigation. The coalition Protect the Protest is pushing back against what are known as SLAP lawsuits. SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuits Against Public Participation. Basically, these are lawsuits that corporations slap on movements to take up a lot of their time, resources, and money in order to try to curb their activism. Together with a coalition of civil rights, human rights, and environmental justice organizations, we're fighting back. So that's a little bit of what we've been up to at CCR. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Activist Files. I'm Leah Todd. I'm a member of the staff here at CCR, and I'm joined today by Beth Stevens and Judith Chomsky. So welcome to us, Beth. Thank you. And welcome, Judith. Thank you for having us. Thank you for being here. So first off, could you tell us a little bit about the history and of how this case came to be and what happened to these families and how this fight began? The incidents that the case addresses happened in 2003 when there were demonstrations and protests in Bolivia against some of the policies of the Bolivian government at the time that quickly led to military actions against civilians. So in the the opening day of the killings that the case addresses, the Bolivian military really marauded through a small town in Bolivia, shooting into houses, shooting at people. And one of the houses they shot into was the home of an eight-year-old girl whose parents are plaintiffs in the case. And their daughter was killed while standing inside the house, shot through a window. That death led to increasing protests, which led to increasing military action. And six weeks later, about 60 people had been killed, civilians, hundreds had been wounded, and the families of eight of the people killed uh, became our plaintiffs. And where did these protests come from? What was the context of what was going on in Bolivia that led to this popular movement? There were multiple things. At the beginning, the protests were largely directed at the fact that a a prior government, in response to other protests, had made a whole list of agreements to address various largely economic issues for all different sectors of society, for some of them having to do with agriculture, some with workers' rights. In 2003, the protests also came to address a government plan to sell gas, natural gas that that came from Bolivia, and to build a pipeline and perhaps ship the gas out to a port in Chile, which was something that was very controversial in, in Bolivia because the port in Chile is on land that used to belong to Bolivia, that Bolivia lost in a war with Chile. And so you spoke about these killings and how there had been, you know, these mass protests and and these horrific killings happening. So how did this case kind of come from Bolivia to the U.S.? What was the journey of that? I would say kind of happenstance is that a young lawyer who was at the beginning of the case, a student at the Harvard Human Rights 
Law Project clinic reached out. He knew about what had happened down there, and he reached out to lawyers in the United States. He heard of uh, a law that permitted foreigners to come to the U.S., to courts in the U.S., and bring a claim for human rights violations abroad. And in this particular case, the two main defendants, the former president and the former defense minister of Bolivia, were living in the United States. So this was the only place where they could bring their claims against those particular people. But this was the first time a former president, living president, was held to account in a U.S. court for human rights violations committed abroad. So there have been other cases. There was an early case against Ferdinand Marcos, but he was dead by the time the trial happened. So it was kind of shocking (laughs) that we got to do it. You know, you spoke about how unprecedented this is. I mean, what did it feel like in those days to be coming towards a trial, having gone on, you know, this case had gone on over a decade at that point. What were you thinking once you were coming towards this trial, having this unprecedented moment happen where this person would finally, you know, face potential justice for what had happened? We were thinking one foot in front of the other. (laughs) I mean, how are we getting the witnesses in? Where's the interpreter? Where's the technology? I think once you're in trial mode, all of the big ideas are gone. And you're really doing the technique of putting on a trial. That's right. (laughs) What about for the clients as the case kind of progressed? It's interesting because on the one hand, the clients understand the odds against them. And they had fought an incredible battle in Bolivia to bring other defendants, the ones who had stayed in the country, to force the Bolivian government to file criminal charges and prosecute them. They both know how hard, impossibly hard it is to get justice, and they also know that sometimes they win, sometimes they do get justice. Every time we had a setback, and we had a number of them along the way, we would go talk to them with some concern. We, we lost, we're so disappointed, we don't know if you still want to keep going, this has been going so long, and they would basically pick us up. They'd say, oh, of course we want to keep going, of course we understand that we might lose, of course we know we lose sometimes, but we really appreciate what you're doing, and we want to keep going. And I think they looked at this trial really in the same way. It's hard to imagine what it felt like for them. They had all been in the United States already for depositions, their first trips, most of them first trips on a plane, first time out of Bolivia, I think for all of them, you know, walking around for the depositions, walking around Washington, D.C., really unimaginable. And then we were for trial. We were a month in Fort Lauderdale in March during spring break. And I cannot imagine what they thought about what they saw on the streets of Fort Lauderdale those weeks. The plaintiffs, these families are indigenous. They're from a group called the Aymara. And almost all of the women are still wearing traditional clothes, which involve layers and layers of wool dresses. 
of course, they'd never seen the ocean. They went on the beach in their layers of wool. So you mentioned that the people come from the Aymara culture, and perhaps you can give us a little bit of context of how that kind of played out in Bolivia in this public protest. I heard you speaking earlier that one of the experts talked about how this story is actually a 500-year-old story. Perhaps you can give us a little context about how this is kind of an indigenous story as well. The protesters in Bolivia in 2003 at the beginning were entirely Aymara. This was a, and from other indigenous groups. So this was a protest against the white elite power structure in Bolivia that took on strength as the weeks went by until it became massive and until the middle class and the professionals of Bolivia finally joined in response to the massive killings. But in Bolivia at the time, the indigenous population had very little political power, very little input, and protests and blocking roads and demonstrations were their only way of getting concessions from the political power structure in Bolivia. One of our challenges in presenting this to a jury in the United States is to understand that demonstrations that involve blocking roads are both common in Bolivia and also totally understandable in a country where even though there are elections, the elections don't or did not in those days produce any a government that's actually responsive to your needs. To go on, we've been discussing kind of the trial and how that played out. You're now under this gag order. I <laughs> can't speak to the press. And then you get to the end of this period of trial. And how does that play out for you? Because I know that there were a lot of pieces at play and it was uncertain what the outcome would be. So once this jury verdict came out, how did that feel for you? We were very tense in the five days of jury deliberation. That's a long time for a jury to stay out. And the jury wasn't sending questions like, can you read back this testimony? So the defendants were pressing the judge to say, okay, jury, decide. It's called an Allen charge, and we were very hesitant to have that happen. And I don't know, an hour and a half after he gave the Allen charge, they came back with a unanimous verdict. I mean, a lot of the legal people who worked on the case uh, were actually crying, and the clients, the plaintiffs, whose mode of dealing with hard times is to be really stoic. In those first few minutes, there was almost no reaction from them. We were, like, hysterical. And then, of course, it was wonderful, and Beth was in Bolivia, so she can tell you what it was like in Bolivia. I was in Bolivia. I had gone down as soon as the jury started to deliberate, largely to be available to explain the verdict, particularly in case we lost, to explain what a U.S. jury trial is like and how difficult it is to explain all these years later and so far away what actually happened in Bolivia. And I got an email saying that the jury is in. And then I got an email, huge capital letters, we won. And I wrote back and I said, what? (laughs) Took me a while to believe it. But the reaction in Bolivia was just phenomenal. This event, the whole country knows about, the overwhelming majority of the country holds our defendants responsible for the deaths and the shootings. 
overwhelming majority is upset that they escaped, that they came to the United States, and they therefore weren't part of the criminal trial in Bolivia. Bolivia has tried to extradite them back, and the U.S. government won't cooperate. So there was just an outpouring of support from around the country for what had happened and excitement that they actually had been held accountable. I went out to do TV interviews. The journalists all thanked me as I was leaving. And uh, the next day, one of the other lawyers got back to Bolivia with the plaintiffs. And everywhere he went, people stopped him on the street, strangers, to say thank you for what you did. It was very, very exciting to be there and see that level of excitement. We're talking about this joyful, successful moment, and unfortunately there's one final twist in this case, which is the judge's order on the Rule 50 motion. But can you talk a little bit about how that affects your plans, what's happening moving forward, and how you foresee the case will continue? To explain first what the Rule 50 was, there's a jury verdict, but the judge has the capacity to overturn a jury verdict if he finds that no reasonable jury could have made the findings that they made. It's unusual for a judge to do that, especially after a jury verdict in which people had deliberated for five days. I mean, of course, we're going to appeal. We think the judge is wrong on the law and wrong on his evaluation of the facts that were in front of the jury. It's significant that the reaction in Bolivia is that a jury, Americans with no prior knowledge of the Bolivia or what the government was like, or that they believed that. And I think that that was really important. Even just one of the plaintiffs talked about the ability to be in front of those powerful old white men and have an opportunity to actually say, this is what you did to me, and this is the person that you murdered, that that was very powerful. And the reaction in Bolivia, as Judith is saying, really was that the reaction to the judge's decision to overturn the jury verdict really was that the jury is what matters. The jury are the the people who came into this with no vested interest, with no connection to the U.S. legal or political system, and those are the people we trust. That's the decision that we consider to be a verdict. The fact that a judge, for whatever reasons, decided to overturn that seems to trouble them much less. They really still think it's a victory. It certainly sounds like, you know, as the case presses forward, that there's room for further victories despite this setback. Just seeing what's happened with this case over, I guess, 15 years since the original incidents at this point, what do you think this kind of means for moving forward for human rights and impunity in, you know, even the U.S. and even globally? There are two lessons that unfortunately sort of push in different directions. On the negative side, it took a tremendous amount of both serendipity and resources to make this happen. I would not walk away from this saying presidents who order the military to shoot civilians should tremble and be concerned because the fact is it's very difficult and very unusual. On the other hand, it happened. 
this president and this minister of defense, first they're in exile. They cannot go back to Bolivia because the Bolivian people rose up against them. They fled, and if they go back, they'll be put on criminal trial. They'll be prosecuted, and they could go to prison. So that victory was won in Bolivia. Then when they went to the United States, a friendly country up north, the Bolivian people followed them there. And the story has been spread out in the papers. It's kept alive in Bolivia. It travels around the world. And I do hope that that contributes first to making it possible to bring more such cases in the future and second to making the powers that be in governments around the world, including our own, think more carefully about the possible consequences for them personally. There was not a big reaction to the trial in the United States. I think how it's seen outside the United States is significant. And one of the amazing things is a friend of mine found out that we won because his daughter called from India, where it was a main item in the newspaper. I think outside of the United States, this notion that a once powerful person could be put in a position of facing justice is big news. Great. Thank you. Do you have any words you'd like to share to kind of the future litigators and organizers of the world, you know, who are trying to take on future human rights violations? Are there any lessons learned that you'd want to pass on from this? Patience. (laughs) I mean, all of the human rights cases I've worked on, except one, actually, if you start a case, think you'll be trying it a decade later is the main thing. And Of course, the other very important factor is how strong your connections are to the place where the event occurred. Because we couldn't have done this without the support of the Bolivian people. People were willing to leave work. These are people who are really marginally employed or have paycheck to paycheck, an overstatement because you know you're getting a paycheck. So people left their villages. I I mean, one of the witnesses, not a plaintiff, it's like a four- or five-hour trip, taking him both from his work and costing him money. And he did it because this was the Bolivian people, in a way, not just the plaintiffs and not just the families of other people who were killed. We had a meeting with the plaintiffs in the middle of trial when we were talking about how it was going, good news, bad news, danger that we might lose, and they were telling us how important this was in Bolivia. The whole country is watching this and is interested. And one of our colleagues, one of the other lawyers, looked at them and said, it's a lot of responsibility. You're telling me I have the whole country of Bolivia on my back. It's very moving. They answered, no, you have the whole country of Bolivia holding you up and supporting you. It did take, maybe not the whole, maybe you don't need the whole country, but as Judith says, this was very much a project from Bolivia in which we had and we needed a tremendous amount of of involvement and support. It's really beautiful. I wanted to ask a kind of different question in closing, just since we have you here and and there's, you know, this case has so much history, but also all the other work you've done, certainly very prolific. So I know that you've been a cooperating attorney with CCR since 
a long time. <laughs> and I know you were actually a staff attorney. Beth, you were a staff attorney mm-hmm. here at the office in the 90s and have continued to be cooperating counsel. So I wondered if you had any kind of stories or insights to share about what CCR was like 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> when I started with CCR, I didn't know anything about international law. I didn't even know the first time I argued, I didn't know how to pronounce those Latin words because they had never come up in my work life. These cases, doing the work with CCR, they're like really sustaining. It feels good. It's the people that we meet, including the lawyers here who... I mean, I've been here Xeroxing in the middle of the night by myself. I mean, it's amazing to see the contrast between what it's like to be a human rights lawyer and what it's like to be in a big law firm. The big law firm, it has a lot of advantages, but doing work with CCR is inspiring, even though it takes Xeroxing yourself. I've had some ups and downs in my relationship to CCR over the decades, times when money was particularly short, when there were layoffs, times when there were tensions between staff and management, and those issues contributed to my leaving the CCR staff. But I came back, and I came back because, as others have said, it's the unique and indispensable organization. I had been gone just a few years in 2001, and I felt it most strongly then that uh, after September 11th, CCR was the place to be and the only place, and others joined in later, but CCR was the one that was there immediately that didn't hesitate, and I felt that over the years and on other issues as well. The Real AF. It's Ian, and I'm here with Jason Swain, our amazing communications intern. How are you, Jason? I'm good, thanks. Are you ready for The Real AF? I sure am. All right. Would you rather be a hot, new, upcoming artist or a rich artist but at the end of your career? I definitely want to be a hot, up-and-coming artist because that would mean that I have my entire future ahead of me and there's still potential for me to become, like, the rich like retired artists I feel like the rich retired artists that's like at the end of their career that's kind of sad I don't want to be that person I want to be I want to have something to look forward to and if you were going to be this hot upcoming artist uh, what kind of artist would you want to be what kind of artist would I want to be I would definitely want to be like a neo rap and neo R&B artist that would be really cool sort of like um why would it be cool just because I like that sort of genre of music the sort of remaking and reclaiming of like not classic but like traditional rap and traditional R&B and like my generation sort of taking it on and making it into something new and like contemporary and Mm -hmm. fun yeah would you rather hold a snake or a tarantula I would never hold a tarantula (laughs) I know that for a fact (laughs) I I don't want to hold a snake either but I know for a fact I would never hold a tarantula so I would definitely want to hold a snake over a tarantula Would you rather eat dinner for breakfast or breakfast for dinner? 
I would rather have breakfast for dinner because I have breakfast for dinner on a regular basis. Pancakes and sausage for dinner are amazing. And I don't think it would be very normal to have dinner for breakfast. That doesn't sound fun or exciting (laughs) or appetizing. Would you rather use only Twitter or only Instagram? I would have to say only Twitter, just because I need to know what's happening in the news. Like, any day now, the t- president could end the world wire Twitter, so I need to, like, see that coming before it mm-hmm. actually happens. So, yeah, definitely Twitter. Would you rather be on a survival reality show or a dating game show? A uh, survival reality show. It just sounds more fun. Um yeah, dating is difficult and treacherous normally. I don't think that dating shows are fun. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely survival show. Is there a survival show that you would want to be on? Naked and Afraid. <laughs> Just because I think that would be really funny. If you had someone visiting New York City, would you take them to Queens or the Bronx? I would take them to the Bronx just because I feel like the Bronx has a really bad reputation or, like, bad misconceptions, but it's actually a really great borough. It's really, like, ethnic, very cultural. The people are actually really nice. There's actually a lot of things to do in terms of, like, there are beaches and parks and really nice, like, recreational things to do in the Bronx. I feel like if someone came to the city and I wanted to take them somewhere and surprise them, I would take them to the Bronx and be like, look at all the great things that are actually here that you can do. Would you rather write a book or have a book written about you? I would rather write a book because I feel like I wouldn't want someone writing a book about me. I don't know why anyone would be writing a book about me. Just the concept seems like, what could they possibly be writing about me that's that interesting? (laughs) Would you rather be able to fly or read people's minds? I'd rather be able to fly and go anywhere I want and see anywhere in the world that I want. I definitely don't want to know what everybody's thinking. Yeah, I definitely don't want to know what everybody around me is thinking all the time. Thanks so much. Thank you.